0: back it's episode 42 of the build we're in our lucas vademo era our byron phrase period our sven chapter not a great recent history for that number um dominic moore wore it a few months for a few months back in 2010 uh if you recall he scored the dagger in game seven of that first round series against the washington capitals that was pretty neat. By the way, that pick that the Canadians traded for Dominic Moore, it was a 2011 second-round pick, which, holy cow, that's a, that was a lot to pay for a fourth-liner in Dominic Moore. Um, that 47th overall pick became Matt Nieto. Uh, pretty nice career for Nieto as well, 600 games, not a single one with the Panthers, um, who were the team the Canadians made that trade with. Florida traded back in the second round. They went to, they traded two spots back, or I should say 12 spots back from 47 to 59 and added a third rounder. The 59th overall pick uh, was Rasmus and Banks- So nobody. You know who went one pick ahead of that at 59? Nikita Kucherov. I don't know why I like these tangents, uh, but I just do. The, the, I don't know. It seemed like a, an interesting way to open this. Hey, uh... Some room to grow for the number 42. Let's get into things here, because this is going to be a long one. There's a lot to talk about. Um, Lots of things going on for the Canadians, regardless of the fact that they have eight games left in a season where they will not qualify for the playoffs. Um, But there's some pretty fun things to talk about. And we'll start with uh, Sean Farrell signing his entry-level contract. On Sunday, uh, he signed his three-year deal with the Canadians. Um, He will... Not do what Jaden Struble did and sign a deal that starts next year and play in the AHL this year. Uh, he is His deal starts immediately. Uh, he will play Tuesday night against the Flyers, which you, you might have already l- watched to this point. how do you do? Leave it in the comments. Um, um, so he will burn the first year of his entry-level deal. In 34 games with Har- Harvard this season, sorry, not Harvard, Harvard, he has 20 goals, 33 assists for 53 points, um, good for second among ECAC players. 2024th rounder, five foot nine. Um, hockey prospecting, um, which is Byron Bader's prospect projection tool, NHL E, um, has him at a 75% chance to make the NHL and a 13% chance of being a star. Uh, full comps include guys like Connor Brown, William Carlson, but also Luca Caputi and Jeff Chevalier. And if you're like, who are those guys? You're, you'd be correct. They were busts. Um, elite Prospect's 2020 draft guide also had this to say about Harrell, Farrell right before his draft year. Um, and, and this is directly from their draft guide. An undersized forward with elite playmaking ability, Sean Farrell has come into his own this year. He's an adept passer and finds teammates in dangerous areas on offense. He's just so damn smart and creative with the puck on his stick, and he's not afraid to try highly difficult passing plays either. So pretty exciting stuff from a fourth-round pick. Um, I don't think he's going to be that point per game over point per game player that he was in college. Um, but if he hits, he looks like a decent playmaking winger or center, um, you know, for the middle six of this roster. Um, Jordan Harris said, great, great player, great kid, like the nicest kid that there is as a player, incredibly smart, shifty, a good playmaker. I don't think he gets enough credit, his shot, like, like his scoring ability, Definitely an intelligent, savvy player. Um, for Jordan Harris to call him a good kid, that's got to mean he's a real good kid. I, I trust Jordan Harris' judgment on this one. Um, when Montreal picked Farrell back in 2020, Cole Caulfield tweeted, "steel," so it seems like he's going to fit in pretty well in that room. Um, and let's get into the contractual sort of um, minutiae of all of this. As I mentioned, this deal starts immediately, meaning Sean Farrell will burn the first year of his three-level, a uh, three-year entry-level deal. There's always, you know, a little bit of concern when it comes to that because you know they're one year closer to another contract. They're no one year closer to being out of their entry level deal. Um, and I know that that's that's a concern among fans. It it seemingly is less so, you know, especially this time of year, a concern for front offices. College players are signing like mad right now. I know Matthew Coronado just signed in uh, Calgary. We're going to see some free agents sign. We're going to see some guys who were drafted sign and make, you know, possibly make you know, nice additions to teams in the playoffs. I know Matthew Nyes is, a, is one that Toronto has their eye on um, a draft pick from a few years ago. So I don't know that, that this is a legitimate concern for folks in the front office. Um, it's not like baseball, where like service time manipulation is a big thing, where teams actively try to keep their talent in lower leagues to avoid paying them long term. The real issue here isn't you know getting out of the entry level deal. The real issue is years until UFA. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to go into why uh, why a player would reach UFA status, how they get there. Um, according to Cat Friendly, a player reaches UFA when they won, are 27 years old on June 30th of the contract expiry year. That's not going to be an issue for Sean Farrell for quite some time. Or a player reaches UFA when they have seen seven accrued seasons. An accrued season is earned when the player was on the club's active roster for 40 regular season games. Injury time counts as long as the injury is hockey-related. And I think it has to be NHL-related. I know it says hockey-related, but... Um, you know, Kirby Doc was injured in his world junior championships. I think it was actually, you know what? I think it was in like a preliminary game and that's why it didn't count. Um, so like Kirby Doc at the end of his current contract is still an RFA. Um, Sean Farrell, this will not count as an accrued season for him. Um, there's only... You know he was signed with nine games left, so those would you know I think each of those would count as an accrued se- an accrued game for him. Um, Farrell's currently 21, so he won't have seven accrued seasons by the time he turns 27. So the real reason he'll hit UFA is that he will turn 27 eventually. Um, so this moves him next to his closer to his next contract, yes, but not any closer to UFA because they can't really that because of his age. That's not really something that's going to happen, I don't think. Um, He didn't practice or play Monday with the team in Buffalo, but he is in the lineup for the game against the Flyers tonight, Um, so we'll see how he does. I'm sure it will be, uh, you know, very uh, measurable response by the fans. I'm sure we're going to take it all very, very, um, you know, sanely and not uh, Ryan Paling this uh, to any stretch of the imagination Um, But let's see, rooting for him. It should be a fun game. All right. Um, This this um, I don't really know how to set this up other than just Rafael Harvey Pinard is really good. (laughs) Like um, I I think it's fairly obvious that he was a fan favorite. um, You know, long before his uh, hat trick on Saturday night against Columbus, but. He really kind of left no doubt that, that this guy is, is someone that the fans are going to fall in love with, and, and to a certain extent already have. Um, coming into the season, one of the things we were looking for from a fan's perspective were really good stories. You know, Arbor Jacki going from Costco to the NHL, Jonathan Kovacevic making a roster spot for himself after being cast aside um, in Winnipeg. Uh, Harvey Pernard is absolutely one of those feel-good stories. Um, here's a guy who was a seventh round pick just four years ago, spent parts of four seasons in the Q, spent parts of three seasons in the A, and now finds himself on the top line of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, you know, it was cool seeing that he spent the pandemic working for his, his folks at their, uh, at the restaurant as a delivery driver. I think I, I I think it was on L'Antichon where he, uh, he showed off his, his Uber driver rating, which is very funny. Um, the Canadians are becoming the working man's team by, by, you know, all stretches of the imagination. But while this has been a really fun story and it will continue to be a fun story beyond this year into the seasons that follow the player that he is, is fun to watch. He's scoring. He's, you know, he's all over the ice. You know, when Raphael Harvey Pinard is on the ice, but the focus of this podcast has always been to try to figure out what, Kent Hughes and Jeff Gorton are thinking and what they will do next um, with regards to how this team is going to build a Stanley Cup champion. And I do think it's an interesting discussion to see where he fits on this roster two or three years down the line because, well, it's important for all Habs prospects, players of Harvey Pinard's age to to create that role for themselves. We've kind of seen Harvey Pinard maybe edge out a guy like Jesse Ulan who will definitely be fighting for one of those spots in training camp next year? Um, and also, Rafael Harvey Pennard is a restricted free agent at the end of the season with arbitration eligibility. So there is potentially a, I don't want to say contentious um, contract negotiation in, in the immediate future, but it could be a situation where Harvey Pennard says, look what I did in, in the NHL. And the Canadians have to say, "Well, you've played, you know, fewer than forty games to get there." But let's dive into all of this. First, let's talk about what RHP can be. Um, Marty makes a point of doing that when analyzing players. I think we ought to do it as well. At least, Harvey Pernard, I think, is going to be an energy bottom six forward capable of playing in the lineup. Um, up and down in the lineup, depending on, you know, if a top offensive line is not going, he might be a spark plug kind of player to move up there for a few shifts, for a game, for a couple games. Um, does he have second line, first line, upside? First line, I would say probably not. I mean, it seems fairly reasonable that the Canadians likely wouldn't have him there had there not been injuries. And that is not a slight to Harvey Pinard. He has been given an opportunity. He's earned an opportunity. And he's made the most of that opportunity. It's not a, I'm not saying, ah, he's, he's only a, you know, a, a a benefactor of circumstances. It's far from the truth. Um, I don't want the production to be what defines him because that becomes a very sticky issue. Um, because he's, he's shooting at 25 and a half percent, which for those who don't know is, is unreasonably high. Like that's an unsustainable shooting percentage for most players in the national hockey league. Um, some players just have a high shooting percentage. I know TJ Oshie comes to mind, you know, not so much anymore, but when the Caps were in their, you know, cup heyday, you know, he was always good for around 20%. Um maybe, you know, over the few years, over the few years where they were, you know, winning the Stanley Cup or getting close to it, he was around that that 20% mark. And Paul Byron is a good example for Montreal. Before injuries caught up to him, he was good for 16 to 20% nearly every year. Um One thing working in Harvey Pernard's favor with regards to this conversation of whether or not it's sustainable and, and, you know, his his shooting percentage is really high. Look where his goals come from. Like, he can't be more than a couple feet away from the blue paint when he's scoring, um, you know, very much goals that we would see from Brendan Gallagher in the past, right? So that's always kind of tough to to parse with, you know, they're not always going to go in, but from that spot on the ice, he seems to be pretty good at getting them to go in. Um it'll be interesting to see you know how that progresses because the one thing you I don't think the Canadians can afford to do is pay for that upside when we've only seen 42 games from him at by the by the time this season is over, we will have seen at most, 42 NHL games from him and we have to make another decision on a contract. Um, so if I had to bet, he probably ends up with an NHL deal for two years, which I believe takes him to his last RFA season. Um, low cap hit, somewhere near a million dollars. Um, and I, I hope that sounds familiar because it's it's almost exactly what happened with Rem Pitlick, right? 24-year-old rookie, expiring deal who scored at a much higher clip than anyone expected. Um, Rem Pitlick, of course, they didn't qualify and they ended up signing as an unrestricted free agent, but they're in, they're in similar situations. Um, that's not to say the players are, are you know entirely comparable, but the roadmap for how they're going to stay on this team likely looks very similar. Um, the, the big difference here being that Harvey Penard has player elected arbitration. So, you know, if things do go south, it has a it has a chance to get worse. Um, but I'm not you worry about things twice. I'm not going to do that. Worry about things once. If it gets to arbitration, we'll have that conversation, but for now I think, you know, bringing him on to your deal around a million bucks because if he does need to go down to Laval, you can bury that cap hit. Um, I think he's a he's a versatile player, um, and you know for the time being he's just a really a real joy to watch. Um, it's fun. Over the last few years, like it's been tough watching the games, um, but there's always been these moments where these guys are taking such an incredible amount of pride in the jersey that they're wearing, right? Like I think of Matthew Paro a few years or was it last year his hat trick against Detroit. Um, how much that meant to him. I think of Arbor Shackeye, you know, doing a P.K. Subban and pulling on the crest on the jersey after a fight. Um, I think of Harvey Penard just living out that childhood dream of a kid growing up in Quebec and playing for the the Montreal Canadiens despite the odds of a seventh round pick ever making it, he's here. Um, It's a cool story. So I'm going to keep enjoying that cool story, um, but in the back of my mind, keeping an eye on what possibly could happen down the line. All right, and from one Quebecois hockey player to another, um, Elliot Friedman on the 32 Thoughts podcast dropped a bit of a, uh, I don't know if I would say bombshell, but, you know, he's definitely throwing more gasoline on the Pierre-Luc Dubois um, fire at this point. Um, on Tuesday, that their podcast, the 30 Thought, 32 Thoughts podcast, um, dropped, and they chatted about the Winnipeg Jets and their current situation, and how it seems like they're gonna they're gonna turn over the core, um, you know, over the summer, and and move on to the next era of the Winnipeg Jets. And in doing so, the, they of course talked about the Pierre Luc Dubois situation um, in Columbus. And here's what uh, Friedman had to say. I'll quote him directly: "The Jets have talked to the Canadians on and off about Dubois. We know Dubois is going to end up there, ninety five percent." Is there some way we can make a deal so the Canadians can get him earlier and we get something we want? They've talked about that. So lots to unpack in that, right? First, the, you know, I think insiders really don't like certainty. They don't like talking about certainty, providing certainty to things. For Elliot Friedman to say 95% he's going to the Canadians, it seems pretty likely that he's going to end up in Montreal. It's just a matter of whether or not that's this summer or next summer. Um, it continues to be true that as long as Dubois is in a place that is not Montreal, there are going to be rumors of him going to Montreal (laughs) until this resolves itself in some capacity until he ends up in Montreal or he signs elsewhere for an extended period of time. These rumors are going to keep happening. Um, So what do we do with all of this information? There are two camps with regards to this Pierre-Luc Dubois um, acquisition. Do you trade for him this summer because you know you can get him this summer? Or do you just, you know, you wait until next summer when the Jets have no more leverage and Pierre-Luc Dubois can just come here regardless of what, you know, any other kind of suitor? He wants to be in Montreal, if we just wait until next summer, he's he's gonna come here, right? Both of these have their pros and cons, and I talked about these in the past, and I actually looked up, it was episode 20 and 21, so go back and listen to them there, uh, and I'll, I'm will going to break them down here because I think it's important, but it's interesting to, to me to see how my thoughts have evolved on this and how the Canadians' thoughts might have evolved on this. Um, so let's, the, the pros and cons of all of these. So the idea of um, playing it cool, waiting for him to hit UFA next summer, this saves the Canadians potential trade pieces right now. It, it saves them Im- immediate financial flexibility. They don't have to sign a, you know a, another top six forward to a long, um, expensive contract where they've already got to sign Cole Caulfield this year, and then they'll probably still have to try to move some salary out. Um, but in exchange for those things, there is an in, an increased likelihood that he leaves, that he doesn't come to Montreal, that he goes somewhere else. And while I know a lot of people are, are looking at this and going, he'll be available, we just have to pick him up. I don't, I would not leave that to chance if, you know, if the Canadians were to try to acquire him in this manner. I just... Let's move on to the other part, though. There's the camp who'd be willing to trade pieces now for the chance to get RFA Pierre-Luc Dubois. This leaves nothing to chance. He's here. He'd probably agree to a long-term contract. Montreal gets a high-quality forward immediately. But it costs draft capital. It costs you know, other future capital, prospects. And it might cost current NHLers, not only in the sense that they would, you know, trade NHLers to Winnipeg, but in the sense that they might have to move players out to make room for all of these forwards now. And the third thing that I that I talked about when I did this on episode 20 and episode 21 was the offer sheet possibility, which at the time did not seem like much of a... Um, a, not a certainty it still doesn't seem like a certainty, but it seemed far it seemed it was the the far least likely option for the Canadians acquiring Pierre le Dubois and I'll get into that in a second because there was interesting stuff that came out um actually a little bit before I started recording, so I want to talk about you know the the pros of a an offer sheet as a separate conversation so before. This hit from Friedman came out. I was in Camp A. I was, let's play it cool. We'll get him as a UFA. There's no reason to send assets to another team for a player that we feel very certain is going to come here. And after reading this, I'm starting to think that the price to acquire him via trade might not actually be that high. I think, like I said, Friedman and other insiders are always very careful ...about their words, and this reads to me, and it listens to me, I did listen to it... um, ...like the Canadians are hardballing the Winnipeg Jets and it might be working. The Montreal Canadiens, I believe, in this situation, have all of the leverage. If the belief is that Montreal is going to get this player anyway... ...and he's not going to stay in Winnipeg beyond next season... The clock is ticking for the Jets to do something now. Letting him walk to UFA is not an option. So the idea that Winnipeg is going to sign him to a one-year deal, you know that at the end of it, you're either trading him at the deadline and you're hoping that he's healthy and has a good season, or you're losing him for nothing in the, the summer of 2024. They have to get something here for Pierre-Luc Dubois. This is turning into a salvage operation for the Winnipeg Jets. Remember, and it might seem like common knowledge, it it seems to me to get forgotten a lot of the time, he was traded for Patrick Laine. And Jack Roslovic, who's turned into a good player in his own right. But Patrick Laine is a second-round pick who had... You know, just like Pierre-Luc Dubois had a really high pedigree, but it, it seemed to be a good hockey trade at the time of the deal. And it could still be if Winnipeg turns this into something, but they cannot afford to let him walk for nothing. That cannot be the option. As long as the urgency remains with Winnipeg to, and then what What Friedman said, get something they want. I give the advantage to Kent Hughes and the Montreal Canadiens here. Now, let's talk about the offer sheet wrinkle. Um, Marco D'Amico of Montreal Hockey Now mentions the the threat of an offer sheet by Kent Hughes. Essentially, it plays out like this. If the Habs and the Jets cannot agree on a trade, Montreal can offer sheet Pierre-Luc Dubois between July 1st and July 5th. Um, If it's a one-year contract, it puts the Jets in a really bad bind. If they match the offer sheet and they keep Pierre-Luc Dubois, they cannot trade him. The league rule with offer sheets is that if you match an offer sheet, or if you sign a player to an offer sheet, you cannot deal them for one calendar year following the date of the signing. Which would mean Winnipeg would have no choice but to let him walk to free agency. If Montreal sets the dollar amount at $6.4 $6.4 million, which is what Marco said, and there there are other things that we can, we can play around with here. That would be a 2024 first-round pick and a 2024 fourth-round pick. Now, I can already hear, and I've seen the reaction to this, that the idea of trading a future 2024 pick when the team is as bad as they are is scary. And I get that. I totally understand that. That was my reaction as well, um, but I don't think the the I don't think the issue here is that the offer sheet will actually come to fruition. But the threat of the offer sheet applies pressure to the Winnipeg Jets, because look at it this way too: on Game Over Montreal, they theorized that Montreal could go really low with the offer. If Dubois would sign it, which if he wants to come to Montreal, maybe he takes a haircut for one season to make it work and then he cashes in next summer or and I think they can start talking about a an extension on January 1st. It might be one of those things where there's already one sign sealed and delivered in the drawer that they just announced on January 1st, but no league, no team would break the rules like it like that or anything. Um, but like, let's say that he goes really low and he signs for four point two million dollars which would make the compensation a second-round draft pick, which would really force the Winnipeg Jets to, to make a trade, to make a trade or just keep them and hope that they win the Stanley Cup next year, which for all of the things that Pierre-Luc Dubois is, I don't think he is like a franchise player. He's a very, very good forward, an elite forward maybe but i don't think he's that sort of game breaker that you need that like all like that the, the, the that the winnipeg jets could build a winner around so the threat of this kind of offer sheet essentially sets up the market for dubois it's it's not so much that you know going back to marco's example it's not so much that the canadians are going to be willing to sign to sign that offer sheet and hand over a first round pick and a fourth round pick it's that that's where, they, that's where they could set the value for Dubois. Like, look, you can, we'll offer sheet him and you can just take these picks, or we can give you this right now and it looks like you came out on top. Because in this scenario, it essentially sets the Canadians up to say, you either take what we are willing to give you for Dubois in a trade, you take the picks in the offer sheet compensation, or you get nothing. Right, and I mean, they could sign Dubois, and you know he could go to Winnipeg for another year, and they could trade him mid-season. But I feel like there'd be a lot less appetite to do an in-season trade because at that point, the Canadians what's their what's their motivation? If we just wait a few months, he's going to be gone anyway. So it's it's definitely going to be um, interesting to see this play out. My takeaway from all of this is that the Jets need to be in salvage mode here, and that's an area where I think Kent Hughes can strike. I feel like it gets done over the summer. I feel like P- there's too much smoke here for Pierre-Luc Dubois to not be in a Canadiens uniform on July first. Um, I think I've, I I I I maintain that I think this is a draft floor trade, um, even if it doesn't involve. Either of the first round picks that the Canadians currently have. Maybe it's a future one. Maybe that one. Oh boy. Maybe that one that they have from Florida via Calgary and, you know, the the entire book's worth of conditions. Maybe that's maybe that's when they end up moving. Um but I think at this point it's just a matter of what number Dubois is gonna wear in Montreal. It which is very strange to feel because it's not often Montreal finds themselves in these conversations for top tier talent. Um This is, this is a moment where they, they, they would need to strike on a player like this because you never know when one's going to fall into your lap like this again. It's very much like the Rangers with Artemi Panarin and it's, I'm not comparing the players. I'm comparing the situations. Like the Rangers weren't really in a situation where Buying Artemi Panarin at the time made sense. They were in the middle of a rebuild. But when are you going to get another Artemi Panarin? So it's really going to be fascinating to see how Winnipeg um, navigates this. And to see if Kent Hughes continues to stick to his guns. He's been very good at it. Um, All right. Let's get to the mailbag. I've got some questions from you guys. You guys delivered as usual. Um, From Ben at Ben uh, Ehrlich. In your opinion, what is the most realistic option for the future of goaltending of the Montreal Canadiens? Is it Primo uh, Dobish, a UFA, or a trade? Um, we've talked about this a bunch on this show, and I think it's a, it's a good question to keep asking because I think that's the level of urgency the Canadiens should have with regards to finding their next future goaltender. Um, it's the biggest question mark in the organization, and that's not to say that they they. Don't have any options. There are guys who could turn into NHL starters, could turn into NHL goaltenders, but they don't have a sure thing. Um, we'll see We'll see Primo tonight against Philly. Um, I know he's a late bloomer and the Canadians can afford to wait, but we're probably approaching a fork in the road situation with him because I believe next season he's going to need waivers to go to the AHL. Um, Dobish and guys like Verbetic or D are too far off to project at this point in time. They've all got promise. I, I don't know to what extent I would say that they are NHL projectable, um, goaltenders. So I guess, you know, I, I continue to think that the, the Canadians future option in goal is not yet on this roster, whether that's via UFA or trade I, or, or a draft pick that hasn't been made yet. I, I, I continue to believe that they will find their guy somewhere. Um, for UFAs, like, you'll never know too far in advance who's actually going to be available to sign. Because, like, right now, within the next few years, Elias Sorokin, Vitek Vanacek, uh, Alexander Georgiev, Vili Huso, those are, those are guys that are all a few years away from hitting UFA. But who knows if they actually make it there? And who knows if they're... Even NHL starters, by the time they get there, it's a very volatile position in this league where a guy can have two or three good years and then completely fall off a cliff. Like, look at Jack Campbell from Toronto. He had two pretty good seasons with the Leafs. He wasn't so good in the 21 playoffs, but all last season he was particularly strong. He fell off a little bit towards the end, but now he's essentially unplayable in Edmonton. So the strategy should be to take swings at goalies in the draft or college free agency or any other means that you would be able to find them. Just keep swinging and eventually you're going to find one. Um, Let them develop for a few years and then bring them over. There won't be shortage of like, you know, Jake Allen's throughout the NHL guys that you can sign for one year who will give you 900 goaltending. Um, There are only three professional starters nets in the Canadian's organization, one in the NHL, one in the AHL, one in the ECHL. There's no real rush to get guys over here when you know that there's a good chance they're going to be sitting on the bench because there's only six total spots, one starter, one backup for each team. And beyond that, like it you know, I don't think it's it's really helpful to have a young goaltender come over here and sit on the bench. So the next goalie of the Canadians is not here yet. That's, that's as nice as Montempo has been this year. I just don't know. Uh, all right. Next, Andrew G at Giesbrekta on Twitter. Uh, Struble question mark, Farrell question mark. Very succinct. I I appreciate that. Um, not much to report on either at this point. Farrell's first game is this, is this, um, this evening. Uh, Struble's two games into his professional career with Laval. He's got four shots in two games and he's a plus one. Um, uh Hadi Kalakesh of Hattie K Scouting on Twitter is one of the the struble truthers out there who thinks that you know there's some offensive upside to his game catching the torch um is a a blog that they have on on Habs eyes on the prize which by the way you should be supporting they they are leaving um they're leaving SB Nation at the end of this week uh and I know they have a Patreon and things like that and they're moving to their own site so support them if you can their work is is invaluable um to just us as fans to being able to enjoy this team. The writers are good people. Um, they got, they got a raw deal with, with, um, SB nation. You should be supporting them at any rate. Um, in that catching the torch article, um, he, how breaks down, you know, what leads him to believe in the upside of Jared Struble. Um, Jared Struble is that even his name? Why did I just completely mess up his name? Anyway, um, he says that his skating is powerful and fluid, and he's got good edge work. He makes simple plays. Um, he makes strong plays on one-on-ones. He's physical when he needs to be. Um, oftentimes, if he misses an assignment, it all kind of goes sideways from there. Um, you know, moving from one def- one attacker to another is, is an area of concern with him. So there's stuff to work on there. Um, but because of the body that he's in... It, it makes sense that the Canadians would like to, you know, continue to, um, you know, develop him in-house, have Adam Nicholas work with him, see what you can get out of him. Um, so hopefully we have more to digest on both those players before the, the season comes to an end and definitely next season, um, especially the, the training camp. We're going to get a good look at all these guys. There's going to be a lot of internal competition. So it'll be interesting to see if those guys can carve out roster spots for themselves. Uh, all right. Uh Dan Moldiver at Dan Moldiver. Uh, what's the right timing for Hudson to turn pro? Um, this is interesting. I know a lot of people are talking about it because he's you know wrapping up his season with BU. Um I think at the very least he's staying in BU for for one more year. Just the, the people that I've talked to who would know um, you know, or who would best be able to analyze the best place for that player. They all seem to believe that he's going back to BU for another year. The lizard parts of my brain don't like that. They want instant gratification um, and they're upset because uh, Lane Hudson is the things he's doing in college are spectacular. Um, but the big picture is what matters here. Um, let him cook again in BU for another season, reevaluate, not only a reevaluation of Hudson, but a reevaluation of your current defenseman. There's a lot of guys there who, you know, aren't going to be long-term projections with this team. There's not a lot of space to carve out a name for yourself on that blue line. Next year is going to be kind of a big tryout for a lot of these guys, even some of the ones that have been here. Um, So there's no, you know, there's no rush to getting him in here because I don't know, you know, to what, if, to what effect, you know, the Canadians would like him to play in Laval or they would like him to play in the NHL immediately right out of college. Um, Montreal has his rights until he's done with college. So there's really no rush from a contractual standpoint. Um, so potentially next spring at the earliest, if, if, you know, BU's season ends early next year. Um, but the Canadians, I think would be best served being patient with Lane Hudson as much as that stinks to say, because I really want to see him in a Canadiens uniform. All right. Uh, Friend of the show, D.F. Pendries, has the next question. Uh, Dwayne, or Johnny Diesel, as I don't call him, um, if he would come back to a, uh, at a team-friendly contract for, say, one year, do you do that deal or just let him go? Um, you also asked where the next goalie is coming from. I think I think we've got that one covered, so we're being efficient today. I'm really stuck on Jonathan Druen. He seems to be having a bit of a resurgence this season, 27 points in 49 games. His contract probably made him hard to move at the deadline, even if Montreal ate half of the remaining money. They'd probably have to get a third team involved. And at that point, like, what what asset are you possibly getting for him? With all of that said, it feels like it's time for the team and the player to move on from one another. Um, he's just 27, so I'm not insinuating his career is over. Um, but this team is turning things over to the next generation and his services, I think, will be better suited elsewhere. Um, even at a low price, it's hard to project a spot that I would give him over, like, a Sean Farrell if he's if he's on the NHL team next year. Um, a guy like a Slavkovsky, who we haven't seen a ton of in a while. Um, a guy like Raphael harvey Pennard, I don't think you can afford to be sitting those guys or playing them in Laval over... You know, playing them in the NHL at the expense of having Jonathan Drew in there. Um, it's a shame we're moving on from him. I think that era of the Canadians is one that we we there was a lot of promise, and we ultimately didn't see a lot of that play out. Jonathan Druen was a victim of the hype. like he, I think he is the player that he was always going to be, but the hype behind him was so much higher. Remember, they acquired him. He was a winger and they tried him at, they were like, he's our number one center. And it was just, it was, I remember writing for rabbit house back in the day, like they moved Galchenyuk off of center to put Jonathan drew in there. And it sent a bad message immediately that like, they were just kind of, they were setting a precedent for this, for this kid that was just not going to be attainable, nor was it a good message to send to the rest of the team. Um, so it's a shame. It's a shame we're moving on from right as You found the perfect nickname as well in Johnny Diesel. I'm going to miss that one. All right. Last question here, uh, but certainly not least from Amelia Pond, who asks, uh, what do you think the rebuilt Habs look like stylistically? Uh, doesn't even have to be a current top team, just style-wise, not success-wise. Combos allowed um, non-replicable models excluded, i.e. Edmonton with McDavid or Bedard this season. Um, and she gives an example. Bergeron was pretty clearly trying to make the 2019 St. Louis Blues. I think that's a really great question and a pretty apt comparison of the late-stage Bergevin Canadians. Um, you know, he did get Joel Edmondson. He traded for him. Um, you know, he was trying to build that sort of, you know, 80s prototypical defense. I, I always go back to the fact that I think Bergeron wanted to build like the early 2000s New Jersey Devils, but just decided that defense was not going to be something they did. <laughs> like, like the early 2000s New Jersey Devils were a monster defensive machine that also just happened to have one of the best goalies of all time in net. Um, you know, the Canadians had one of the best goaltenders of the last decade in net, but they also played next to no defense in front of him and they just chipped pucks off the glass and they weren't tough to play against and it was just a mess. Um, my gut reaction to this question is to say that the Rangers are a comp for the Canadians rebuild, but it doesn't really seem all that close. And the reason is for, for wanting to go that route is obvious to me, N- you know, Jeff Gorton led that one. He's leading this one. Um, the Gorton Rangers got some big lottery wins, which Montreal has gotten. They got one. Hopefully they get another one. Um, they got a game changing defenseman. They have Fox. We have Hudson who has the potential to be a Fox type defenseman. Um, but they also have built around a premier goaltender in, in Ilya Shosturkin, which, as has been documented on this show, is a an organizational um, weakness at the moment. Um, plus, you know, I don't see the Canadians having the ability to sign a UFA like Panarin anytime soon. Dubois, like I had mentioned, is kind of that that nice comparable to Panarin, not in the sense that they'll have the same impact, but you're buying a player. Um, in a time where you're kind of re- you're, you're still rebuilding your roster because that player is available and they want to come here, um, so give me the Rangers for the lottery wins and the you know potentially game breaking defenseman and that you know buying uh, a player who just wants to come and play for your team. Um, also give me the Devils with regards to Dougie Hamilton, who you know looking into the numbers, he's a pretty nice comp for for Mike Matheson who's been phenomenal this year. And Dougie Hamilton is sort of, you know, I think they're both 29. So they're older than, you know, the, the rebuilt core of the teams that they play for, but they are, you know, their team's top defensemen. Um, Rantanen is a pretty nice, you know, uh, player comp for Slavkovsky. If Slavkovsky hits, you know, that's sort of the, the comparison that, that we've seen since he was picked. So there's a lot of parts to draw from in each of these. Um, I think Colorado might it, just because they've won, they've got to be the model. Um, you know, Colorado doesn't have traditionally elite goaltending with pedigree. They have Alexander Georgiev, who's been fantastic, not only by his standard metrics, but you know the the sort of goal is saved above expected. He's he's right up there in the NHL, but he's not a guy that like is a, you know, one of the the eight, nine, $10 million goalies in this league. So that's an an, an option for the Canadians when they get to the point where they need to start adding a goaltender. Um, The the Avalanche have defensemen that move the puck well. The Canadians have defensemen who are hopefully going to move the puck well. They play the game with pace. I know Marty St. Louis really wants to play the game with pace. Um, Colorado is the model in the league right now, right? Like they are... They won, they're the most recent winner of the Stanley Cup. I know Tampa Bay is also a model, but you know, they they've proven that that they can win with other casts of characters as well. And I also think that, you know, both of these teams had a tremendous amount of lottery luck throughout, right? Like they've both won lotteries, they've both drafted really high a whole bunch, um, which is why it's imperative that the Canadians continue to do that for at least this year and potentially next year. Um but you know that's that's just something that that you know will come with time. We'll find out you know who the Canadians are actually trying to mimic. Um, I think it's best you know to 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 pull from as many of these different places as possible. Every team does one or two things really well. So try you know try to try to do that. I know Gordon's probably gonna pull from a lot of the same stuff that he was doing or planning to do in New York, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, that's all I had this week. Um, thanks for sending in questions before I go. I do want to talk for a minute about like what's been happening around the league with, with pride nights. Um, we don't need to get too much into the, the weeds of what's actually happening. It's fairly simple. They're not wearing pride uniforms, whether that's the teams deciding that they don't want to, um, creating some reason of player safety or players exercising religious freedoms to not wear a rainbow. Um, one of the first comments I ever got on this show was that I was being too woke. Um, which while I'm on the subject of that, (laughs) that woke is a word that like white folks have kind of just completely hijacked from, from, um, AAVE and it, it's kind of lost all semblance of meaning because of that. It's sort of the same thing with like virtue signaling. We've, we've completely lost what, the the that has never had meaning, and it just keeps getting repeated to the point where people think it has meaning. Um, that I bring up that comment because I, it's not it didn't change the way that I think about any of this. Right, like this podcast, me as a human, um, always going to be a space and a person that it's accepting and respectful respectful of folks of all gender identities and sexual orientations. Um, these pride nights around the league are. The latest arena for a culture war here in the States. Um, which for those who don't know, I am American. Like, I know it's kind of odd that a, you know, an American's hosting a Canadians podcast, but there's some context for you. Um, I think the part about this that's frustrated me the most um is that like hockey media is so ill-equipped to to handle this. Their response every time is to put the few players who refuse to wear that Jersey in front of the microphone and ask them open-ended questions and try to get them to explain why they're not wearing the Jersey. And the players are so are very well media coached and they know what to say without saying the quiet part out loud. Um, And it's, it's disappointing because it seems like every time they get behind every, every time this happens, Media around the league are just providing a, a soapbox for these players to just scream transphobic and homophobic stuff. Um, Reimer, James Reimer got a follow up this week. Um, someone out in San Jose followed up with him. And you know, the first two questions were like, What's your week been like? How is your family holding up? Like, continuing to allow these players, these people, to, to. To play that victim card right like to 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 make people believe that they are the ones who are being slighted in all of this um i'm not going to repeat the things that they said in that in any of their statements in any of their um you know uh media availabilities because it would be absolutely counterintuitive to the point i'm trying to make right that that like we should not be amplifying this stuff um I'm not an anti-media guy. I think those who know me, those who have followed me for some time, I've always kind of laughed at the the fans who, who seem to blame the media every time something doesn't go their way, every time something bad happens and they they report on that bad thing and then it just becomes a narrative and they're biased and they hate people. And it's just, I've never been that kind of guy. And I don't, and I, this isn't about the people, right? Like I'm not, that's why I'm not naming anybody by name with these It's, it's an institutional problem within the sport, within that profession that is just setting, setting this up for guys like Eric Stahl and James Reimer and Mark Stahl to, to go in there and just, and play the victim and be allowed to say whatever they want when they, like, why are they being afforded that opportunity? Um, you know, Eric Stahl's instance was especially ridiculous considering he wore, a pride jersey two years ago in Montreal. And then when he was confronted with it, he swore up and down that he never wore it. Like, Eric Stahl didn't do what he did for religious reasons. He did it because someone else did it first, and he's a coward, and now he gets to do it without repercussion. He didn't want to be the first one. It's frustrating, and it's sad. Um... Because there are kids out here who are losing their heroes. Which, you know, I'm a big dumb grown-up. Like, these guys aren't my heroes. But there are no doubt kids who feel represented by that pride sweater. There are adults who feel represented by that pride sweater. Who feel hockey is a little less inviting and a little less safe right now. Um. You know. I, I... It's shameful that, like, a few morons are are hijacking this night that is not supposed to coexist with people like the Stalls and people like James Reimer. It's supposed to be a celebration of a community that aims to thrive in spite of that and in spite of a past and present of being repressed and attacked and killed by bigots. So stop putting microphones in front of these guys and amplifying... Hate speech. And start putting microphones in front of people who can speak from this community. God bless Brian Burke. He cannot be the only person we talk to about this. That's the problem though, right? Like, is that hockey is not a very inviting place for people in the LGBTQIA community. It just isn't. And it hasn't been... And these pride nights are supposed to be opportunities to show that community that they are welcome here. Players like Matt Kachuk and Jordan Harris, to bring it back to the Canadians, have said the right things, but it's getting drowned out by the knee-jerk reaction to, to put the rhymers and the stalls on a billboard. They didn't want to participate in that night. They should have been made irrelevant. Which is why also it's a shame that they allow these players to participate in warm-up and play in these games if they refuse to do a team activity as a team. Talk to, these, to, to the people who feel represented by that warm-up sweater. Because that's what this is about, right? Talk to local communities like the ones that are often represented at these Pride Nights. I say often because some teams, their pride nights kind of suck. <laughs> like I know they're there this year. They had 32 of them in the NHL or they, they will at some point by the end of the year. I went to one a few years ago. I just happened to be in New Jersey for a Canadians game and it was their pride night. Um, other than like a booth with shirts and the anthems being sung by members of a local gay men's choir, there wasn't much going on. Um, I, I, I don't really have a way to end this other than to say that like the community represented by that by these knights and by that sweater deserve a whole lot more than what they're getting. Not only from the NHL, but from other fans, from the media that they consume surrounding this sport. And allowing these people to pose as martyrs and continue to, you know, force this culture war. It has, it has devastating real-life dangerous consequences for people who are going to be marginalized at the very least and attacked at the very worst. There are laws being proposed and passed in the United States that will end up killing trans people and gay people and queer people. If you don't un- understand what makes those pride nights so important, look around you. It shouldn't be lost on anyone that the Stalls did what they did in Florida, which has become notorious for the, the don't say gay bills that, that are being copied and pasted everywhere else in this country. So I go back to that first, that, the, the first comment I ever got on this show about being too woke. And that word's so stupid. For those who don't want to hear it, I'll say the same thing I say every week. You have a choice how to spend your time. And it's probably best for you and for me and for the rest of the listeners of this show if you spend that time elsewhere. We will continue to talk about this until hockey gets it right. And they are a very, very long way from doing that. <sighs> Thanks for listening. I'm on Twitter at maybe it's Ian, uh, at rabbit Habs for the blog that might disappear in a month because I think the. Uh, the domains up, and I don't know if I want to pay it. Um, check the link in the, the, but all the links to the things that I mentioned in the show are in the description, um, including the music you're hearing right now and the music you heard at the beginning of the show um, by Fred Mugg. His Bandcamp page is in the description. Go check out his music. All right, guys, take care. We'll talk soon. Bye.